Hi and welcome to another episode of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. This isn't just another episode, Marco. No, it's this the is finale. It is. It's the finale of uh, this season, as we like to call it. Season two, exactly. It's it's a two part <laughs> finale in true Harry Potter movie style. We <laughs> yes. split the last episode into into We're dragging two parts. it out as long as possible. <laughs> exactly. This week we have a very special guest who was kind enough to speak to us for a long time, Yes, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> um, so we thought the best thing to do would be to split this podcast up over two episodes. And we're releasing the first episode today and the next episode is out in only three days on Monday. But who is it, Marco? Who is it? It is Richard Morgan, or Richard K. Morgan, as he's known in America. He is the author of sci-fi novels such as Altered Carbon, which has been turned into massively successful Netflix series. Yep. Season two's coming early next year, I think, in 2020. Um, and also a fantasy series, but he's also written video games. Comic books. Yeah, uh, across a whole variety of, of uh, media. Yep. Um, Richard started out as an English teacher, and uh, after 14 years and a post at the University of Strathclyde, Altered Carbon was picked up and... Uh, his life basically changed yeah, from there. It was, it was, it literally was that kind of dream overnight success. Except as we hear, it certainly <laughs> wasn't overnight success. <laughs> not, not for that. that. That's a good point. It's quite, it's quite an interesting and quite a long road he took to get to that success. Yeah, but it shows the the value of determination. But we won't talk too much about it. Richard explains it all in this first part of the podcast, um, and at the end of the podcast, we'll be back to chat a bit more about what Richard had to say to us and. And we will announce the winners of our recent Andy McNabb competition. That's right. So don't go. Please stick it on for the end because I've got the got the raffle tickets out here. Yeah, we're going to do a live draw. Live tombola. <laughs> yes. Okay, we'll get on with the podcast now and we'll speak to you later. See you then. Did you always want to... Uh, write novels for a living yeah uh since as long as i can remember i mean i think i say i think uh, jk rowling said it for me um years ago i saw her interviewed back in the early 2000s and she said something like something along the lines of um as long as from as long as i have known that there were such things as writers that you could make your living from writing um that's when I. That's how long I wanted to be one, yeah. and I think I think that gets it for me as well. I mean, I I can remember with pretty pretty perfect clarity saying to my schoolmates when I was age eleven, saying to them, "I'm going to be a novelist when I'm grown up. I'm going to write books and get paid for for writing them and all the rest of it." <laughs> and um, they laughed at you probably. And they, they did. Laugh at me. They said, <laughs> one of them said, "One of them little little shit said, <laughs> said, frankly, Morgan, I don't think you've got a hope in hell." Uh, <laughs> He was a bumptious little shit. Um, I mean, it was his parents speaking through him. You could hear it in yeah, the voice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so that was age 11. Um, and it had clearly been rooted for some time prior to that for me to be sort of putting it out with that level of, of sort of confidence, of, of determination. So, yeah, I, as long as I've really been aware of the fact that the, the career novelist existed, mm -hmm. I think that's what I've always wanted to be. And is that because you were you loved reading as a kid as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I've been reading again. You know, I dim and distant past. I, I, you know, always had always had books around the house when I was a kid, and we've been reading as long as I can remember, as long as I could read, presumably. Um, and yeah, I think I always loved stories. I used to write stories at school, you know, in my rough book and stuff. And and I think it just came with. It, it must have come with that. It was a low fact. And, and I can remember. I can remember writing stories. For no other reason than because I didn't have any books that I hadn't reread two or three times, mm -hmm. and I was desperate for something to read. So, so I used to make up stories and write them. Um, so, yes, I mean it's, it was all it was hand in hand with that. It was the idea of um, you know I, I love this stuff, and uh, how about if I try and create this stuff? And um, um, when did you when did you first sort of start trying your hand seriously at it? Then? Because you you became a a, a teacher. Or not a oh, yeah, that was a, yeah, that was a bit of a detour. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I I think I let me think. I I started writing, you know, with a view for to publication when I was about fourteen, I suppose, because I, I started writing this this kind of epic fantasy, and it. Uh, I don't. It wasn't very serious in the sense that I, I kind of, I, I didn't really have any parameters for it. I just kept writing. It just kept going, um, uh-huh. and uh, I, God knows how much of it I actually produced. The story just kept rolling. <laughs> I, so, but I think in my mind during that process was the idea that this was eventually for other people's eyes as well. This was something that I, I wanted to see on, you know, with a book jacket on it. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, again, that was some. That was an entertainment. I mean, I just, I just sort of trundled for for two or three years, just kept on churning it out, and it never really, you know, there was no resolution. There was no sense of the characters reaching any destination of any sort. Um, so that that was that was in my early teens, and then I think, um, let me think, yeah, and then I started writing short stories again for publication. I was sort of shooting for magazines like Omni and stuff in my late teens and very early 20s. So while I was at university, I wrote a couple of mm-hmm. long shorts then. Uh, none of them were really up to standard. And and I say the submission, I was very willy-nilly about submission as well because there was a lot else going on in my life. And, you know, it wasn't I wasn't focused at that point. And I had this rather endearing belief that I would just, you know, one day I would just wake up and be an author. Yeah. Uh, and I hadn't, even at the age of 1920, it hadn't really dawned on me that this might actually be quite a long, slow and painful process. Uh, um, and then, yeah, I started, as I, after I graduated, the year that I was down in London immediately after graduation, I started writing a novel, and this time I had a very clear sense that, right, this is going to be a novel that I will submit for publication. And I wrote that over a period of about two years and I did actually complete it and um, finished it when I was living and working in Istanbul actually and when I got back I started submitting it but I mean again it was very green stuff very raw and uh, I got although I got a lot of good notes I mean a lot of people wrote back to me um, you know agents and so forth wrote back saying oh you you know you have writing talent uh, you clearly you have the gift. Send me something else. You know, when you, please feel free to submit submit some when you write something else. And that in itself was a massive blow because I'm like something else. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is it, man. This is it. You know, yeah, this I, is I <laughs> never got to the got beyond the thought of writing the bloody novel. I never thought, yeah, well, I've got to write another one. Uh, <laughs> So, as you can see, I was I was kind of immature in my approach to the whole thing even then. Um, and I say, I, I, I'd, I'd never bothered. I mean, it's a curi- again, it's, looking back, I, I cringe at it. I'd never bothered to acquaint myself with, you know, how the markets worked, um, you know, what kind of stuff you could write for what kind of markets, mm-hmm. uh, what the process was like. I mean, you, you know, with how much you should write before you submitted, uh, all this kind of stuff. I just hadn't done it. I just sat down, wrote a novel. When it was done, I, I mailed it out, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and that again, I showed this sort of very naive and slightly spoiled, I think, outlook, where I just assumed that I would, you know, I'd finish this novel, it would be brilliant, and I would just send it off, and someone would go, "Oh my God, this is brilliant," mm-hmm. and that'd be me, you know, I'd, I'd be away. Um, and yes, it took quite a long time for it to sink in that, that that's that's not how the world works. <laughs> and is, uh, was that a novel that eventually became one of your novels? No, you know? no. I mean, I I kept the manuscript around out of, uh, yeah, for nostalgia, I suppose, yeah. um, for quite a few years, even after I was published. Um, and then I remember we moved house, and I was tossing out a bunch of stuff, and I'm like, you know, like, do I really want this to see the light of day? Because I mean, I suppose I could always have you know, t- taken it and tidied it up yeah. and maybe sort of given it to my publishers. And I was looking at it and I'm just like, ah, no, no, this is not, <laughs> this is really not, not, you know, I would not want my name on this now. Uh, so that it got binned, it got shredded along with a bunch of other um, paperwork and stuff in one of our house moves. Um, and it is no more. Um, but uh, I still have fond memories of it because I say it was by my earliest stages of putting together fiction uh you know in a coherent sense it was the first time i'd actually tried to you know have a sense of a complete arc yeah. a narrative and so forth well, uh, go on yeah well of course older carbon was the first book that, that you that you did put out in the end but you'd worked on market forces for a while as a short story and stuff and a screenplay before that is that right 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, market forces has a, a, a quite an interesting evolution because what happened was I came back from traveling. I mean, I've been in the US. I came back and arrived back in like 1990, God, I don't know, 93 or something like that. And and um, I got back. It was it was the sort of the the tail end of the Thatcher years. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, no, wait a minute, no, back up a bit. Let me think. No, it was before that. I think. It must have been right after I came back, so about 92, something like that. Uh, and I got back into the sort of, there was a morass of, of you know, sort of Tory hellhole that, that the country had become. And, <laughs> and I just, in a fit of rage, I wrote this um, short story about, about well, it's basically the, the duel at the end of Market Forces. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and then I mailed that out and uh, sent it to Interzone. And again, they came back with something I was used to hearing by them and said, oh, you, you clearly have talent. Uh, <laughs> um, you, you write very well, uh, but I could not sympathize with either of these selfish, yuppie characters. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that, that was kind of the point. point. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that kind of, and to be fair, that section is not dissimilar to the, to the chapters in the book. Now, I mean, I obviously, I spruced it up in terms of stylistic um, Yeah. And stuff. But fundamentally, if you read the last couple of chapters of, of Market Forces uh, from when he and Mike go at it, mm. basically, the road, that is the substance of the short story. It, it really didn't change at all in the, in the passage into um, that. So, you know, I've not edited my material. And I say, I think something was – there was a zeitgeist issue there as well because I just think that back then, for whatever reasons, this this sort of darkened zeitgeist it just, it hadn't really got on its feet at that yeah. point, yeah. and uh, and so yeah, the editor at Interstone, poor poor thing, um, <laughs> he you know he's clearly like oh my god, this guy is horrible, but then this <laughs> also horrible, uh, and um, yeah, so anyway, so that got rejected, and then it sat for a while, and uh, and I was in London, and I was at a party, and I met a woman who was had just finished up at the film school in Gloucester Road. And she was trying to put together a film projects, and I can't remember. I, and I, I, she said, oh, "I understand that you write." So I said, "Yeah, I've written a few things. I'm not going to publish." So she said to me, "Oh, well, um, you know, have you got something that you, you reckon might make a decent film, or you know, or a TV episode?" Mm-hmm. So I said, "Well, I've got some shorts. You can have a look at them if you want." So I lent them to her, and she came back to me with Market Forces and said, "I really love this, and I think this could be a really great movie." So. Um, how would you feel about working on turning it into uh, a screenplay? And in my innocence, then I thought, oh well, this might be the you know this might be the door. So I yeah I did, and so I spent about a year and a half working on it in conjunction with her, and we got huge amount of crit. I mean, one of one of the great things of well, great things one of one of the things about the movie industry is that there there's a huge amount of talent washing around that hasn't found work. Yeah, and those people are prepared to you know to give of themselves to a quite astonishing degree for absolutely nothing mm-hmm. if they think a project has potential and they might you know end up attached to it so we had you know we had script editors talking to us we had i mean there were a couple of people at the bbc who were kind enough to um, wow. to, to go over the script with us uh we submitted to british screen and uh the and, and I had you know the, I, I, it's supremely talented art you know um, film artists designing the cars and the highways and what the buildings wow. would look like and all this all all for free all totally wow, that's for free. I know and and we had a there was a guy an aspiring director who again a friend of this this woman who who I was working with and he had just lucked into some money. Um, I don't know where exactly, and had actually managed to get it together to make to to produce um, a short, which he was screening at the um, cinema at the uh, top of. I can't remember. It's, it's the um, it's one of the Piccadilly Circus ones, um, right. and he he got the funding together to have a sort of a, a screening for select uh, literati types, and um, and he was involved. You know, it was like, oh yeah, I would really love to. You know, I, I would really love to be the director on this. So he was he was getting his his shoulder to the wheel as well. Fantastic. And we kind of trundled along for about a year, and um, you know, I kept editing and kept taking the notes and trying to do things with them. And then in the end, they say that a guy, another guy at the BBC, just basically popped our bubble and he said, "Look," he said, "the problem with this is it's big budget, uh, a lot of CGI, a lot of." crash effects a lot of you know a lot of damage that's got to be paid for and um, 
So, so you're talking about a very big budget movie, and the only kind of the only people you'd get to you know who could get this made are people like Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jean Claude Van Damme, maybe because he was enjoying a bit of a yeah. uh, time. Uh, and he said, I'm, "I'm I'm afraid those guys are just not going to want to play a character this morally compromised. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they just won't." Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Um, so, so that was it. They got kicked into touch, and then, then what basically happened was that the the ripple from that, the people involved generally sort of moved away. The producer woman, she she said, "Well, look, can you write something else? We'll start from scratch." And I wasn't having that because yeah. you know I, I'd, I'd invested too much of my time. In. So I just said, "No, forget it. I'm going to go back to the novel that I was beginning to put together before we started this, which then became Altered Carbon." So you know, for once, it was the right decision. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that story in itself shows that. The, the you need that sort of determination and self belief mm-hmm. even when you're getting you know going down a project that almost comes to fruition then it doesn't I mean that must have been a bit of a gutting thing to be yeah. told uh, at at that point having put so much work into it yeah I think I think the um, especially with movies I think because yeah. the whole I mean I think the the point with with novels and what I still love about them is you write a novel and it's done. And when you've finished it, I mean, it won't matter whether it's published or not. You wrote that novel and it is there. Yeah. It exists. Yeah. It has an existence. You can give it to someone to read. Uh, and it's, you know, it, it, it's solid. It's in the world. And that's, that's never really the case in movies because any script you write, no matter how complete and no matter how sort of, you know, how many drafts you've been through, in the end, that's only a template for making something. Mm-hmm. The actual finished product is the movie, not the script. Yeah. So, uh, there is a lot more. There's a lot more of the attitude of sort of shred it, shred it, and start again uh, with that because people are people, you know, are not as deeply invested in these things very often. They will just they'll bang out the script, and if they can't get anywhere with it, they'll just it, that, so it just gets shredded and they'll bang out something else. Now there are some people in the in the uh, novel writing business who also take that approach. I remember meeting one at a, a Waterstones event once. And where he had basically, his whole process had been write three chapters, write a synopsis, send it off. And if he got no joy, then he would shred it and, and come up with something else. Wow. Uh, and he'd done that about four times before he finally got a bite. And then the bite that he got was from a literary agent. And she said to him, um, I really like the way you write, but this isn't it. Can you write me something else? And he, he then shredded that and went away and came <laughs> else Jeez. which which she then took on and which she managed to she got published you know got it got her deal for him and away he went and i must admit i was i was kind of at one and the same time deeply admiring and also kind of horrified because the thought that you would you know just churn this stuff out and I, oh no i can't get it i can't sell this oh well in the in the bin yeah. it goes yeah. because nothing i've ever written has felt like that i mean i've never you know i've occasionally had days where what i'm writing feels like it should go in the bin yeah. but I've never, ever felt that what I've produced is so disposable that I can just tear it up and start again, you know. Uh, that That is a I, – I guess it's a gift because I think you know, you've, got to, you've got to be quite hard-nosed if you want to succeed in the creative industries. And I think maybe a part of that is being prepared to just set fire to your, your, um, your pet projects if necessary. Or, you know, put them in a drawer because – Come the day when you do finally break in, who knows? Maybe you'll be able to do something with that. Yeah, yeah. and I, yeah. that was that turned out to be the case with Market Forces because, um, yeah, I when when I got the movie deal for Altered Carbon, the the guy who'd done the deal in Hollywood for me, he came sniffing around and asking my editor what else did I have, and I had already talked with my editor about novelizing the screenplay that I'd written of Market Forces. Mm-hmm. And when he mentioned this to the uh, to, to the, the the Hollywood guy, he's like, "Oh my God, that I can sell that! I can sell that! Look, when's he going to write it?" And he's saying, "Oh well, you know, he's got he's got to do uh, you know another, another there's another two books in the Kovacs yeah. series, and then and, and and the guy's looking at him, going, do you, know, you know, do you not realize how old we'll be when that? <laughs> um, can he not do it now?'" And so my editor rang me up and explained the situation, said, "Do you want to drop what you're doing and and um, do this instead?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, hell yes." Because obviously, novelizing an existing screenplay yeah. is a much easier yeah. process. You had that uh, yeah, so I, novel- mm-hmm. I novelized it. I turned it over, um, handed it to him, and 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 the Hollywood guy was as good as his word. He he came back with a massive option from Warner Brothers, you know, pretty much there and then. And so I had that was optioned for a movie with Warner's uh, before before it was even published. Wow! Wow! Well, oh, right. I, did, I didn't realize it was that early on. I mean, that must have been I, because I. 
because we'd already had the deal with um, Alta Carbon. And the thing, the crazy thing is, and this is very much the case in the movie world, you know, more than anywhere else, I think, is that a little bit of success goes a long way. So, the, you know, the, the fact that Alta Carbon hadn't been made wasn't didn't matter. The fact that Warner's had seen fit to lay out a large amount of money because Joel Silver had said he was going to make this movie. Um, that was enough for someone at Warner's to also yeah, go. Yeah. Well, why, we'll, why not give him a similar amount of money for they're, this other? They're thing? desperate not to miss the yeah. train. Yeah, because yeah. because Joel Silver back in the well, this would be what late ninety. Well, no, what no? When was this? No, no, no. That was well, two thousand two. The, the okay, so so Joel, Joel Silver was quite big off the back of the Matrix stuff back then, wasn't he? Oh, he was huge. Yeah, he was huge. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, it was it was indicative that he. You know, he want he took the option was taken out for him, mm-hmm. but it was paid for by Warner yeah. because that's a, he, he didn't have to pay for it. He just um, you know he just told them that this is what this is what he wanted to do, and they went, "Yeah, sure, so, no problem. Here's the cash." So at this point, you'd you'd, you'd launched all the carbon, and was getting that book out there was that quite hard? Or, you know, trying to find an agent and everything at that at that process, or was that actually quite easy compared to what you'd done in the past? No, no, that was that was very difficult as well, uh, and that was another one where I think the the issues of self belief come in because. I I mean, I wrote the book and it, it was, to be honest, it was too raw. I, I had not been careful enough with it. Uh, I'd, I'd written it over time and the way I write tends to be quite um, uh, reiterative. So I will start writing and then I'll go back and revise a bit and then I'll push forward a little bit more and then I'll revise a bit more and then I'll push forward a bit more. So it's a bit like, it's a bit like the tide coming in. Yeah. You know, waves yeah. come in, go out, come in, go out, come in, go out. But, you you, you know, hopefully they are moving their way up the beach slowly but surely. Yeah. And um, so the, the end result of that was that the early chapters were extremely polished uh, and, you know, I'd had a lot of time to work on them, a lot of time to think about them. Uh, the back end of the book, not so much. And so, of course, when you submit, you submit early chapters plus synopsis. So I submitted my early chapters plus a synopsis. And in almost every case, I got a request to see more. I mean, mm-hmm. practically everybody that I submitted to, whether it be an agent or a, you know, a, um, a publisher, an editor, mm-hmm. they all said, oh, lovely. This, this looks great. Yes, oh, wow. send us the rest. And then I sent the rest, and without exception, they all went, eh, yeah, no, this, no, no, please come back when you've written something else. <laughs> Starts all over again. I, which was absolutely gutting, obviously, yeah, because, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I thought, I, I really thought I was in there. Because when, when you get positive feedback from, from everybody, you, 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 you kind of feel you've, you've, you know, you've opened the door. Yeah, uh-huh. And of course, what it was was that they saw the potential in the, the stuff that had been beautifully polished. Yeah, that was a bit of a blow. So I was forced after, I don't know, you know, about a year of, of submitting, I, I was forced to accept that there was something wrong. So I, I took the book away. I took the manuscript away and um, I had a, a month off in the summer. I was working in Spain, went down to the south coast and stayed with my girlfriend, my then girlfriend's um, grandmother. And while my girlfriend and the family were out at the beach having a great time, I stayed in the house and ripped the manuscript apart and put it back together again. And basically went through, shredded everything that was, you know, I felt was self-indulgent or, or you know, mm-hmm. wasn't wasn't pertinent and whatever. But of course, the problem is once you've done that, yeah, I couldn't, you know, I would still have been the, the early chapters didn't change because they were the polished ones. Yeah. So, you you know, you resubmit. You can imagine how pleased those guys were to see the same <laughs> thing again. Uh, and they just they they told me to get lost. I mean, yeah, yeah. Sort of, look, look, I've already told you not that I don't want this. Why are you sending it to me again? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I was, I mean, I was very, very down about it because it, because I, you know, I, I submitted to everybody as far as I could see. And, um, yeah, personally, the stuff I write is, is sort of science fiction stuff as well. And there's certainly a more limited field of people that you can submit to. And when you, you know, a lot of people say no sci-fi, no fantasy, things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Although I think you'll probably struggle to find people who say that now. I think it's become such a mainstream concern yeah. these days. Everyone's uh, quite happy to see it. But yeah, no, I mean, back in the day, that was very much the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would find that a lot of literary agents would, would specify that they didn't want to see SFF. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I say I was very lucky in that uh, I'd moved from Spain back to the UK and I stumbled upon um, Virgin, uh, Vir- Virgin Science Fiction, mm-hmm. which was, uh, say, an imprint that... Um, Virgin had put out and uh, 
I so I, I can't. I, I mean, I literally I found a, a Virgin sci-fi book in in a bookshop, and I thought, oh, I didn't know these didn't know Virgin were doing this. So, so anyway, I I basically just mailed it off to them, mm-hmm. and uh, got this amazing letter back from their editor, which said, uh, you know, thank you for submitting your manuscript. This is a really wonderful uh, piece of work, and um, I would dearly love to publish it. <laughs> Unfortunately. Oh, the- God. <laughs> Virgin Science Fiction imprint has been frozen, taking uh, <laughs> further notice, and uh, it's in no, by no means clear that we will ever publish again. If the imprint is unfrozen, rest assured that I w- this I would make this my next book. However, in the meantime, you really should submit it somewhere else. I was like, yeah, <laughs> tell me. That. <laughs> oh God. Uh, so so anyway, what I did was I, I took that I took that letter and I photocopied it about a million times, and then. I, I went back to the agents that I'd submitted to who had been the nicest to me, and I started resubmitting with that letter on top and a covering letter from me saying, look, I know you've seen this twice before, but <laughs> <laughs> please read this, you know, please read attached document one, uh, a letter from the editor of, of Virgin Science Fiction. Uh, and I finally got a bite. I got one agent, uh, Carolyn Whitaker, at the London Independent Books, and she she sort of she went, "Oh, all right then, but you'll have to pay me for postage." And, <laughs> and, uh, so I, I don't know whether she thought, you know, oh, I'm probably wasting my time, but or whatever it was. But anyway, she took me on, and yeah, that was like sort of smashing your head against a brick wall that suddenly becomes an open door. Um, you know, she took me on, and that was May, and I think by. September of the same year, I I had my three book deal. Wow, that was fast. Yeah, very fast. I mean, that, uh, no, that, I mean, she, I, after after so many years of like battering your yeah. head against the door, it must have felt so good to to suddenly have broken through like that. <laughs> no, I mean, it was it was I I I was hallucinatory. I actually you know could barely believe it had happened, mm-hmm. and um, and, and I say the you know the, the the first rule of writing a novel club is get an agent and the second rule of writing a novel club is get an agent mm-hmm. uh, because it's it's you know the agent can cut through all of the bullshit and i i saw that with with carolyn actually because you know she said to me she because i she said right well we've got to start submitting now so who have you submitted this to <laughs> and i'm like uh well everyone <laughs> um and she goes no no but come on names so i started naming names i'm going oh well um you know such and such a person at, at, at yeah. Pam McLean. and she goes yeah, well, he's dead. Uh, <laughs> he died two years ago, so I'm pretty sure he hasn't read it. Um, who else? And so this other person, yeah, well, she's on maternity leave right now, so he's probably in a slush pile. And I say, she, even when she gets back, she, I doubt she'll get to. So that kind of insider information mm-hmm. was absolutely invaluable. She was, she was able to cut through all of the, you know, and, and, and also to target the book because she, she looked at it and she's like, oh yeah, I know someone who'll like this. You know, and and went directly to to um, Simon Spanton at Galanz, uh, and yeah, predictably he absolutely fell in love with it, and uh, and that was it. I say the rest is history. Um, so you've got to be lucky, basically, and um, and determined, though. Clearly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I say don't make your own luck, don't you? I suppose in that sense. To some extent, yes. I mean, a certain, an enormous amount of stubbornness helps. Although it also helps, I think, to to you know be prepared to modify your stubbornness depending on what you hear. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I do think, looking back, that if I listened a bit more attentively to what people was, were telling me, I could probably have arrived at that point a lot sooner. Uh, you know, had I been prepared to think a bit more about them, about what the markets were, what the potential was, what kind of work. I mean, again, in all those years, I never even thought about writing for comic books. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. which, which again, I think now looking back, I probably could have done that. I could have made a decent fist of that. You know, even early on. So. Uh, you know, there, there were a whole bunch of avenues that I just didn't explore because I had it in my head. No, I'm going to write a science fiction novel and it's going to be the greatest science fiction novel ever written mm-hmm. and it's going to be a bestseller and I'll never look back, you know. Um, and that stubborn, that is the wrong kind of stubbornness, you know. <laughs> um, you need the stubbornness that says, I will become a successful writer, but but you've got to be prepared to listen, to hear what mm-hmm. the voices, you know, yeah. of experience are telling you. And a number of people said to me, oh, you know, maybe you should try writing something less this or something more this or whatever. And I think had I had a slightly more exploratory attitude, I, I think, you know, I might have got there sooner. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, you've got to, I think, know what you've got hold of. Because to be honest, I think that, you know, 
as I think has been demonstrated by by recent events, Alter Carbon really was something special in terms of yeah. the concept. Yeah, it definitely was. Absolutely. Uh, when when you were when you were doing that tearing it apart, tearing the the apart from the start of it where you polished it, when you were tearing it apart like that and sort of rebuilding it to then resubmit and everything, did yeah. you you know how did you know? Right, this is better. I need to leave these bits. Did you were you showing it to anyone to read to get any feedback at all, or was it just your own judgment that was that was telling you what needed to be left out and what didn't? Uh, it was pretty much my own judgment, to be honest. I mean, because I mean, my 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 wife wasn't a science fiction fan; she she still isn't, to be honest. Okay. Uh, I mean, she reads my stuff because it's mine, but um, <laughs> she's she's not a, not a genre fan, especially. Uh, and I didn't really know any other genre fans. That's the other thing. I mean, I the whole. The whole fandom thing came as an enormous shock to me when I discovered it. I didn't know it existed. Mm. Uh, so, no, it was really, I think I just, you know, took a long, hard look at myself. And I, I literally was sitting down with the manuscript and, and reading it and going, okay, I know you had fun writing this bit, but it's a bit childish, isn't it? Mm. You know, uh, scratch that. Can does Do we need it? You know, does it does it do anything in the story? Not really. Okay, so it can go, can't it? Um what about this? Yeah, this is a bit self-indulgent, really, isn't it? Okay, cut it. And basically, I went through and took out anything that I felt even remotely queasy about mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how um, how valid it felt, how mature it felt, uh, and yeah, and then and then everything else that, that that I felt you know was good enough to stay, and I left in. And I think yeah, I mean, I'm subsequently, I think that I I must have. I had, I think, I had sufficient self possession to be able to do that reasonably well. I think possibly the enormous shock of of all these rejections was was enough to, you know, to to wake me up. Mm-hmm. It was like that cold glass of water in the face. And uh, uh, and I, I imagine your your process of writing novels must have changed completely now because when you're writing Alder Carbon and Market Forces, you were working as a lecturer and stuff. And obviously, when the success of Alder Carbon came out, you were able to give all that up and just write exclusively full time. And was that was it harder to find the time to write, or did your process change at all at that point? Process hasn't changed at all, to be honest. I wish it would sometimes, uh, <laughs> but but um, no. I mean, the difference is that now I have a lot of time. So uh, you know, in the past, I was writing just in yeah evenings and weekends whenever I could grab the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I know that's one of the reasons why you've got to be passionate, obviously, because you are sacrificing your social life, yeah. your, you know, your 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 friendships suffer, your uh, you know, even your relationship can suffer as well if you if you've got a partner who mm-hmm. doesn't sort of understand. Uh, and then obviously, yeah, once you're full time, it's like right, well, I get up in the morning and I don't have anything else to do except this now. Um, I mean, I sometimes find that if I've got too much time. Then I'll say, well, I'll, I can go to the gym at ten o'clock, or I'll, I'll go after I'll go after lunch, and then I'll, I'll go after dinner, and then, I, and then I don't go. Whereas if I've got a limited time, I'll I'll, I'll do it in that time because I have to do it then. Or but that wasn't the case for you then. Uh, I think initially no. I mean, initially I I think that there were a couple of things. That, the first thing was that just the sheer enthusiasm of it. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm actually doing this. Uh, so. It was no, you know, it was in no way any imposition to get up in the morning and have breakfast and then immediately start writing. Yeah. I was, I was, you know, yeah. and, and the second thing was that I had an enormous backlog of, um, not not necessarily stuff, but ideas, you know, thoughts, fragments, bits mm-hmm. and pieces. So I mean, Broken Angels was was based upon a fragment, you know, a sort of a, a, a failed novella that I I'd been working on. Uh, so. Market forces obviously based upon the screenplay and the, mm. which was based in turn upon the the short story uh and it wasn't really until I got to woken Furies that I was needing to actually break genuinely new ground uh, you know so so there was a sense in which i was there was you know I'd already exposed the seams of awe and all I had to do was dig them out yeah uh, and that's that's again that's a lot easier you're you know you're, you feel you feel sort of surrounded by 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 riches. And then yes, it does get harder once you've once you've exhausted your existing supply, and then you really are having to go back to the coal face and say, right, so I have to. What am I going to write? What am I going to write about? Yeah. And then it then it's then it's harder. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, the thing is, the thing is, you you always end up in this position where you've got the best job in the universe, and and you're you know you find you hear yourself complaining about it, yeah. <laughs> and it's just. No, you know, no. Uh, if you ever hear a, a full-time successful author 
you know, moaning about their lot, then they, they just need a slap across the face because <laughs> we are so incredibly privileged. We, we, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about the guy who has to keep his day job because yeah. the books are just not selling enough or, you know, uh, I'm not talking about those guys because I, I take my hat off to those people. I mean, the, the, the sheer will it must take to, you know, to be th- three, maybe four novels in, still not making enough money to give up your day job yeah. um, and still commit those weekends and evenings and all the rest of it. That that really is a tough gig, and I, I, you know, I really do take my hat off to those people. But if you are making a nice living, you know, a good living from your writing, uh, and, it's, and you don't have to do anything else to bring the bacon home, then... I mean, fuck off, you know. It, <laughs> don't don't come to me with your writer's block and your bloody, uh, you know, agonising about this and the other because it, it's just not real. It is so far from real, mm-hmm. you know, compared to what any working Joe is going through in in terms of of having to actually scratch a living. That you know, there there really is. I, I I mean, you know, there's no such thing as writer's block. I mean, I'll be, be straight up about that. Um, there, you do have periods when you find writing easier or harder. And there can be a variety of reasons for that. Uh, but, you know, these these are what they call uptown troubles, you yeah. know. Uh, and and I, I always feel slightly embarrassed about, about talking about them because it always feels a bit to me like, oh, it's so difficult when one has to choose a restaurant to eat in on a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> and one, one can only spend £200 and it's so hard to know. Uh, you know, that that's what it feels like to me. It feels yeah. like lecturing a bunch of people at a food bank about about how hard my life as a restaurant critic is you know um so no you know don't don't buy it uh you know creatives who are making a living a full-time living from their their art you know we're the luckiest people on the planet we really are and uh and there's no excuse Uh, yeah we all have bad days, even bad months, you know. Um, I mean, I went through a period when, just after my son was born, when I was so shattered from just looking after a baby and, you know, doing the, the, the fatherhood thing that I was really struggling to string a, a coherent sentence together. You know, I mean, that's speaking I'm talking about, yeah. not, not actually. <laughs> no, I know. I've been there, don't worry. <laughs> I, you know what it's like. And so, yeah, you are, you're sitting there staring at a blank page going, hang on, no fucking clue what I'm supposed to put on this page. But... Again, you know, if I I, w- I was in the position where I could go, okay, you know what, I'm not. I'm going to go downstairs and play with the baby for a bit, yeah. um, and that's the difference. I think that is the that's the important thing. It's yes, it, it it's not that it's easy. It's not that it's you know that 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 there aren't difficulties and that it, that you don't have your moments and all the rest of it because that that is the case with it doesn't matter what you do. That's yeah. always been. yeah, that's that's true. Every job, every job will present that, and every job you know, there will be days when every job you hate your job, no matter how good the job is, but. I really feel that you sort of you don't have the right to to moan about it because I think that the you know the context in which you're having those problems is so cushy mm-hmm. that it's just not you know it, it's um it, it, it it's uh, it's not steamly I feel to complain <laughs> about this. Your novels are are all I would say famous for having quite complicated well not they're certainly complicated characters mm-hmm. and the plot you know they're very plot driven as well as having good characters as well so do you plan out a lot before you uh, start writing or do you have the idea and then sort of see where it takes you yeah ideally i would dearly love to be one of the the plotters rather than i'm a pantser right okay yeah um, and i would dearly love to be a plotter because it it does look like a lot less hard work Mm -hmm. um you know, you you sit down, you work out what your story will be, your characters, their arcs, wh- where it's all going to end up. You know, and then when you've got it there, you go, okay, right, bang that out, um, and then obviously clean it up and, and polish it and so forth. And I'd love to be able to do that, but unfortunately, uh, I I it, it, that system just won't work for me because most of the most of the really good stuff in my books uh, is comes as a result of me sort of writing myself into corners that I have to get out of, mm-hmm. and. And it literally is coming to life on the page as I write it down. So I will have an incredibly vague sense of where the book is going. Uh, you know, occasionally, I mean, I'll, quite often I'll have a very strong sense of what the finale is going to be. I mean, take the last book, Thin Air. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you guys read it? I haven't read Thin Air yet, no. I've, I've read all of the Kovach and Market Forces. Uh, I've read most of the stuff, but yeah, not, not Thin Air, in fact. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, well, um, okay, so let's take Broken Angels, for example. Yeah. Uh, I knew what the ending of Broken Angels was in the sense that I knew that, you know, 
where Kovac would end up, what he would end up, um, you know, that he'd end up escaping, if you want, how that would happen. But, you know, as to how I got to that point and, you know, what the collateral damage along the way would be, I really didn't know. And I, I that got worked out in the process of writing the book. Uh, and the book is way darker than than it, I'd expected it to be. I mean, I, I I was in a great mood. I mean, I think it's the most bad tempered of all the books I've written because, <laughs> you know, it was it was the Iraq war. It was, you yeah. know, it was the Bush and Blair and all that shit. And I, I was so angry about that. But. Also, just the, in, the, in the nature of the writing, I just the more I wrote, the more I, I wasn't interested because there were going to be all sorts of you know sort of heroic gun battles, and, and there was going to be a bunch of, of space opera type um, uh, swashbuckling, I guess you call yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the more I wrote, the less I felt like doing that stuff because I'm like, ah, Christ, this isn't this isn't you know this isn't the Crimson Pirate, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think. Along the way with Broken Angels, I kind of discovered a dislike for those kind of narratives where I guess it's the Gone with the Wind narrative, isn't it? It's where the the sort of the romantic uh, concerns of the close protagonists play out against a backdrop of great misery and loss, which is really window dressing, you know, and the, the, the so the, the loss just is, is, is sort of, a, it, it's, it's a cool way of, of you know, yeah. a cool environment to put your, your, your characters in. And that just increasingly with Broken Angels, that felt wrong to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt wrong to be having a planetary war and just using it as window dressing for, for this rather cool mm-hmm. adventure. And so that seeped into the narrative and the narrative sort of became much more rooted in, in people being stuck in places. Mm-hmm you know, not being able to do anything about their situation. And, um, you know, I'm just having to sort of sit it out to survive. Uh, and it became rather, say, rather than a swashbuckling space opera, it ended up being a, a rather grim sort of trench warfare novel almost. And uh, that, But I couldn't have predicted that. I had no clear sense. All I knew was at the end, Kovacs will, will get out of this. And I hit roughly, this is roughly how he'll get out of it. But I had no real sense of how it would play out. And and I had to, that stuff got made up along the way. And a lot, there's so much in Broken Angels that surprised me even, you know, that I, I, I'm like, blimey, where did that come from? Uh, you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm afraid that most of the good stuff in my novels tends to to come to life through that business of the actual creation itself. Mm-hmm. So if I if I map out the book before I write it, I'm going to be so bored when I'm actually typing it yeah. out that it, it's just not going to work. And that, I mean, Market Force is a case in point. I mean, it, I, I, it is a good book. I mean, I'm I, I'm happy with with how it came out, but it's so predictable. I mean, you you know from about chapter four onwards exactly where this is going. You know the confrontation yeah. that is yeah. is going to come uh, and. Yeah, and I mean, I I kind of cover for that and say, well, you know, it's like a Shakespearean tragedy. It's sort of, you know, you you you're there willing the character, no, no, don't do that, don't do that, and then then he does it anyway. Um, so th- there's a kind of cover for it, and I I think you know in a way, Market Forces works quite well as as Jacobean tragedy. You know, it, it, it has a nice there is a nice Jacobean feel to it, I suppose. Um, it's very grim. It, you know, there are no heroes, and at the end, the people who are still standing, are, you know, are so horribly marked by what's happened that uh, you can't really call it a victory for anybody so that's a theme that runs across all your books though isn't it yeah, 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 the cost cost yeah, yeah, yeah. you could have your you can have an ending but by god it's going to cost you yeah yeah i'm the i'm, I'm the writer I'm, I'm the plumber writer aren't i the guy comes around looks at it looks at your plumbing goes What was the last film that you saw? Uh, last film? Oh, that's tricky. You tend to spend so much time staying in with Netflix these days. Yeah, I know. Yeah, no. um, God, what was the last film? Oh, yeah, uh, it was a Netflix movie, actually. Um, in the Shadow of the Moon. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, yeah, which I thought was quite good. I, I, it was. It got a little bit schlocky in part, but it was. I, I really liked it because I, it took me back to a an era back in the, I, I think, the you know, the, the 70s, really, mm-hmm. uh, where high-concept science fiction was a thing. And you get these movies that were made really based around a, what essentially is a real, basically just a, a science fictional short story. Um, and they would just put together, a you know, a movie around that mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and not care that it, you know, it didn't necessarily have... Um, 
you know the, the narrative arc of a um of uh, of yeah. a standard movie or indeed any of the set pieces of of standard movies and and shadow of the moon reminded me of that a little bit because it it, it was all about the idea of, of yeah what it was. definitely was i think um, that's right uh but i no, so i really enjoyed that i thought that was good and i'm i'm i unfortunately i so i'm 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 living in east anglia at the moment i moved down from glasgow back oh, okay. nearly four years ago now and um and unfortunately, uh, Scorsese's Irishman hasn't made it to the big screen in this part. <laughs> uh, as you'll probably know, a lot of the cinema chains have refused to carry it. And uh, so uh, I'm unfortunately going to have to wait till the 27th to yeah. see it. Yeah. On, is that, uh, is that some kind, kind of protest against Netflix moving into cinemas? I, I don't know what it is. I mean, to be honest, I think they're cutting their own throats here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, think I think their argument is that because the, the Netflix deal is limited release yeah. for you know three weeks or a month or whatever it is and then and then it goes then it's released to netflix exclusively i think their their feeling is you know that's not fair because we're not going to get a fair crack of the whip here because as soon as it becomes available on netflix people aren't going to bother to come to the cinema to see it and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so we're going to get a taster we'll make a little bit of money up front but we're nowhere near the amount that yeah. we should be you know, get and I think well, I can kind of see that argument, but at the same time, I, that's not an argument for not showing it. That's a, because you're not. Going no, to put I know the, exactly. You're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. No, I mean, exactly. It's you know Netflix and HBO and these guys are here to stay, and it's this is the shape of things to come. And the other thing is, as Scorsese himself has said in interview, there's no way this movie would have got get, got made without no, that's Netflix. Right. Exactly, exactly. So I think it's a bit churlish of the movie industry to um, you know to cold shoulder it like this when. You know, they themselves would not have been prepared to, to uh, you know, to to uh, carry the load themselves. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I think increasingly this is the case. And again, a lot of the material I'm seeing on Netflix, you're thinking, yeah, this would never get a showing. Oh, totally. There's a lot, a lot more experimental stuff on Netflix than you'd ever get yeah, normally. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I saw a movie um, last year, uh, and what was it? I can't remember what it's called now. Um, Driver, or the it wasn't the the cinema, no. the, you know, the, the the big screen one, the um, Baby Driver, or no, it was just called Driver or the Driver or something like that. Um, this is a movie about a, a, a guy who's recently out of jail and he's doing a driving job for some dodgy friends, and uh, everything goes tits up, and he's stuck in the car trying to solve this problem desperately before the night ends, and he gets either arrested or shot. And uh, the entire thing is, I mean, practically the entire thing is filmed from inside the car. Mm-hmm. So you you. There are a couple of scenes later on where they have to break that in order to to carry the film forward. But most of the film is is from inside the car. Uh, And I thought initially, I'm like, oh, God, this isn't going to work very well. Uh, But it does. It's absolutely gripping. And and the other thing that's interesting is it's only an hour and 10 minutes long. Yeah, that's right. They definitely they, they yeah, don't worry about runtime. Yeah, as well. exactly. And that's yeah. the point: is that that's not a movie runtime. No. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't make an, an, a movie that was an hour and ten minutes no. long. No, no one would. No. no one would wear it. Um, but uh, because Netflix is like it's it's all content, you know, and it's like you know, will will people watch this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, we think they'll watch it. Good. We don't yeah. care how long it is. Um, and so. Things like that, you know, oddities, movies that are an odd length, you know, and again, you see it with the, the TV programming as well, that the episodes aren't all a, a, a uniform, you know, sort of um, 53 minutes long. Uh, yeah, for or, ad breaks and stuff. No, or, that's or, right. You get some yeah. very short episodes. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. yeah. we had some episodes that were like 30 minutes and some that were like an hour and a half. And it was yeah, just... yeah. I, well, well, I mean, um, say all to come is a case in point. There's, I think episode seven is like an hour and seven minutes long. Mm-hmm. And then most of the others come in around the 50 minute mark. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a complete... Actually, no, sorry. I think episode seven is, is almost an hour 20. Um, so again, they've loosened the bonds on what what you know what can be done and I, I, that can only be healthy you yeah. know I, 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 that diversification of product is it, it's own, it can only be a good thing um, absolutely uh, and what what was the last book you read uh, well I just literally finished I think a book caught by a guy called oh god I, it's a shame it's not here actually Farris I think his name is he's a, a Mississippi based crime writer alright and it's called Desperation Road cool I haven't heard of that one it's it's public. Well, it's published by um, No Exit Press, who I think about based up uh, near you guys in Edinburgh. All oh, right, okay. Um, awesome. But uh, yeah, I say uh, it's called Desperation Road. He's written a couple of others. I shall probably seek them out now because it is it's rather good. Cool. Um, we'll definitely check that. Out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, what was the last TV show or what t- what Netflix series are you watching <laughs> just now? 
Uh, right. Um, I've been well. I'm going to give. I'm going to say there are two here because I think they they both sort of made a, a big impact in different ways. Um, I just got through watching Guilt. Oh yeah, oh, uh-huh. I've heard I'm that's not, really good. Yeah, yeah I've not, not watched, watched it, it but yeah, which good. I think is a BBC production. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched it on Sky, and it's you, you know you've got catch up and everything, so yeah. I, I have no sense of of who actually transmitted mm-hmm. it. Um, <laughs> but that's brilliant. I mean, it's 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 a real slice. I haven't seen a slice of of sort of Scottish noir like that since um, I don't know Low Winter Sun. Mm-hmm. I think was oh, the, last yeah, yeah. the last time I saw anything quite as full on grim. Um, but it's got that guy. Uh, what's his name? Is it Eric Bonar? He's uh, he's is a Scottish actor. He was um, he was in uh, Catastrophe. All oh, right. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I know him. Yeah. Yeah. I he's he was yeah. the sort of uh-huh. frustrated husband uh, yeah. with the very intense look. Um, so he's in it, and uh, there's another, another guy. I don't know that I didn't know any of the rest of the cast. Oh, Bill Forsyth shows up in it later on, but that's really a cameo. Um, and yeah, it's just this deep, dark uh, Scottish noir. So it's a it's a chip off the old shallow grave block, mm-hmm. uh, and really compelling and really beautifully written. And as he, this guy Bonner, he's he's absolutely sterling. I mean, he, he nobody does a sort of piercing, withering, uh, exasperated stare like he does. <laughs> Um, so that that was very good. Guilt. Okay. Okay. It's only it's only four episodes. Uh, oh, nice! Say. I quite, I quite like a nice short show. You can. Oh, you'll can get it. You'll get yeah. you'll get it on catch up. Uh, really? uh, sure. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is, I'm in the middle at the moment of this um, Russian thing on Netflix called Better Than Us. Okay, I've not heard of that either. Okay. I well, that's that's a. Um, that that's a, a sort of it's it's a bit like you remember the Channel Four show Humans. Yes. Yeah, well, it's, imagine humans, but done well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Because the thing, I mean, I, I, it's a bit unfair, you know, there's a lot of talent in humans and, and some really good acting and, and so forth. But the, the big problem with humans was that it stampeded towards this kind of standard issue guardianista I concern with, with you know, human rights yeah, and yeah. Yeah. so forth. and. But once you establish that the, that the the androids have free will, that's it. They're humans. Slavery's bad, guys. Um, you know, and you're in the territory of the what was that dreadful um, sociology teacher they used to have in South Park? You know, so you you end up with this sort of uh, slavery's bad. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, and and I I felt that it really failed the material so badly because there's so many interesting things you can do with the. You know the, the the concept, the material of, of that, and this one, this Russian thing, better than us. It, it it occupies a lot of the same ground, but it is just much, much nastier, mm-hmm. and much, much more to the point. Because you've got it, you've got a again, you've got it centers around um, a family and an an, an android uh, that bec- sort of becomes part of the family, as it were. Um, but at no point are they pretending that this android is, you know, is like a human or anything like that. The, the, the issue of enslaving them doesn't come up at all. It's just literally, we're not sure what this thing is yeah. uh-huh. or what it can or will do. Um, and, you know, a lot of the same tropes are there. They've, you know, there's a sex bot industry. Um, there's the, the fear that, that the, you know, these things are going to replace us and that there'll be no work for humans anymore. And there's a resistance movement that's trying to smash them up and so so it's familiar ground in that sense but it feels so fresh and so different right um and and part of that also i think is cultural it's because it's set in a in some unnamed russian uh, megalopolis you know in supposedly it's it's supposed to be now more or less you know in 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 the very near future um and then so cult the cultural indicators are all rather different as well you it, it has this kind of rather, it's got this kind of bleak Russian mafia feel to it uh, as well. And, you know, a lot of shaven headed men in leather jackets walking around, smacking people around the head. And, uh, um, it, it's, and it's a bit like the contrast between uh, uh, Stranger Things and I don't know if you've seen the series Dark. Oh. Um, yes. It's, okay. That's very, it, yeah, very good. They're it. both in the 80s, but Stranger Things plays up to that sort of eight, yeah, 80s goodies, Americana. Yeah, Spielberg. Yeah. yeah. Whereas dark, the eighties in Germany just, just, is a very different <laughs> is a very different thing. 
Yeah, but no, I mean, it's really, I mean, I'm only about halfway through. It's it's, it's one season, but it's about 16 episodes. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, only, I'm about halfway through at the moment. And but it's really, really good. Um, and and they've with the actress who plays the, the the sort of the central bot, the one that is the, the sort of focus of the story. She's called Arisa, um, and she. I mean, I'm sure some of it is also down to a little bit of a little bit of CGI and a lot of makeup and stuff. But she really comes across as unhuman, mm-hmm. whereas I think humans they they kind of gestured at that in the first couple of yeah. episodes, but. Pretty soon, everyone you, you just forget about it. And yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, they're, they're human, yeah. and you're still eight episodes in. I'm still, I still find her unnerving. She's an unnerving presence. Mm-hmm. And she's a guy gets in the car, and she's sitting in the back seat, and he didn't expect her to be there. And it's like <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it's the way she moves, the way she sort of turns her head and looks, and and I, I say it's a very different beast to humans. It really is. And I say, I think in a way it sort of highlights what I didn't like about humans uh, rather well. Yeah. It's asking the difficult questions. Yes. It's like, well, you know what, if this is a constructed thing, then actually who gives a shit what happens to them? You know, they're, yeah. They're, yeah, exactly. aren't they just machines? You know, what, mm-hmm. why should you consider, just because it has a human shape, why should you think of it as, as, you know, a human that deserves the, the respect that humans deserve? And, and they're not, you know, they're just not going there. They're just not, you know, as far as you've got a big corporation that makes them and all they want to do is sell them. And um, you've got, you know, people have become used to them in support roles, like as care workers and things like that. And um, some people bond with them. Some people sort of have a close relationship with them. Some people don't. Some people hate them. But they are still very uncanny. You know, they're, they're, um, it's very clear that what this is not human, whatever it is. Um, and and I love that. I do, you know, it, that's what science fiction should be doing. It shouldn't be... Yeah. That's what the best science fiction does, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I say that was the problem with with humans. I mean, humans, by the time you got to about a halfway through the first season, you might as well have been watching Twelve Years a Slave. You know, it Mm. was it was that was the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Slavery is bad. Okay. Um, (laughs) We know slavery is bad. (laughs) That's not a complicated. You know, we we don't need to keep going over that. That this is something else. This is this is you know asking what what are things like at the the the, at the liminal um, edges of of what is human, what isn't human, what you know to what extent are we going to see these things as human and and what does that mean? What implications does it have? Um so I, I really I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm Excellent. finding it very nice. oh, I'll have to have a look at that definitely. Yeah, well, definitely. I yeah, for sure. Right. So say so very, very creepy indeed. Well, I thought that was a good first half of our chat with Richard. Yeah, it was, you know, he, he really did struggle to get to the launching of his book. And obviously it was a huge hit when it came out, but getting to that point was a real struggle. Yeah, but it, I think it really does show the value of determination. Yeah. And as he said, you've got to know, got to have the right stubbornness, I think. Yes. You've got to know when to take criticism on board yes. and realise what to take out. I mean, he sounds like he was pretty harsh with himself when he was doing those revisions on Altered yeah. Carbon and really pulled it apart to, to make and, it the novel that got, eventually got picked up. And I think that's a theme we've, we've heard from a number of authors. Claire Askew last mm-hmm. week said something similar about the ending of her book, knowing what to agree to and what to keep in it. Yeah. And it is tricky, especially when you're that close to it all, but it does show you that, that you do need to make these hard choices sometimes. And, and it's not easy, but you, and you do need a bit of a thick skin over was it fourteen years it took him? I mean that's crazy. Well, it, it, certainly he was teaching for fourteen years. Oh, of I'm course. not sure if he was yeah, writing yeah, right, Richard Carbon for that for that length of time. But it certainly had he had the experience with Market Forces, which nearly became mm-hmm. a film, and then um, even the journey that he took with Altered Carbon, where he was rejected, then sent it back to agents, and eventually got this letter from from the publisher, which <laughs> he then sent, he went bust. sent back to the agents again, which you know goes against everything that yeah, everyone yeah, tells you, yeah. but it worked for him. So and it again, shows how you... many people have you chatted to that, that have gone against the rules? Yeah, everyone exactly. always says, and it, it and it which doesn't really help because it, it means you can break the rules if you break them in the, in, in the right way. But yeah, that's right. <laughs> who knows yeah, the there's right probably way another uh, hundred people that have done <laughs> yeah. what he's done and not got picked exactly. up. I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to the quality of the writing, yeah. but. It does show you that if you really believe in something and, you know, there has been some interest from people, then it's, it's, yeah. it can be worth yeah. uh, uh, pursuing that. Um, just a couple of things that Richard uh, 
mentioned there, he said his latest book was uh, Desperation Road, but he couldn't remember the author. That's written by Michael Farris Smith. And he was also talking about the uh, BBC programme Guilt. Uh, he was trying to remember the name of the lead actor. I think he said Eric Bonner, but it's uh, Mark Bonner is, is the sorry, name of the Mark. actor. Sorry, yeah. sorry about that. <laughs> exactly. Um, but as I say, I hope you enjoyed that first half of our chat with Richard. Uh, on the next episode, we continue our chat with Richard, where he gives us more writing advice and also talk to him in detail about how Altered Carbon came to the screen. Yeah. Um, so it's a really interesting chat and yeah, it's the yeah. sort of journey that I think a lot of writers want yeah, to go on. Yeah, it is that kind of dream, you know, write your book, have a big success, Netflix show. But even that journey from book to screen mm-hmm. was a long journey that went yeah. to a number of people. Went for, was it going to be a movie, first of all, and it went to Netflix. So, yeah, there's a lot of interesting chat about folk having their work adapted. Yeah, so I hope you tune in for that episode. Uh, but now, but, but let's now, do what the, the people we, really we na- for. We must do the draw for our... Uh, Andy McNabb books. So, how many books have you got to give away? So, we have two books to give away. We have one of Andy's earlier books, uh, Line of Fire, uh, in paperback. And we also have uh, Andy's hardback book, the latest one, Whatever It Takes. Um, And he signed both of these, which we really appreciate. Um, And they also win a copy of Page One, which is our writer's notebook. You may have heard us mention a few times in the podcast before. We're going to put a copy of that in with each of the books so the lucky winners will get the Andy McNabb book and a copy of page one to help so, them with their writing project. Yeah, so they can write the next great thriller. Yeah, to watch it, out Andy. Yeah, exactly. If you don't know what page one is, if this is the first episode you're listening to, it is a structured notebook we've designed to help you plan uh, your story. It's divided into different sections with templates like characters, plot and yep. so on. Um, so there's a bit more about that towards the end of the podcast and if you're not lucky enough to win you can always buy one on our online store yes there's a christmas sale on there is a christmas sale on but enough 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 from us enough promotion let's do the draw so we'll do the draw first of all for a line of fire first of all line of fire here we go okay so the first one is this is for line of fire yeah i'm gonna Spin the tombola here. So many <laughs> entries, they're all spilling out on the floor. Oh, here we go, I've got one. The winner is Dave Phillips. Dave Phillips, who entered on Twitter. So, um, Thank you very much, Dave. We'll, we'll be announcing these winners on our social media as well, but um, we'll need to get in touch with Dave, but we can put all of that on yeah. social media. So, uh, well done, Dave. We'll get a line of fire and a page one notebook winging its way to you shortly and then now for the whatever it takes the latest book from Andy and let's see here Andy Green Andy Green excellent so Andy entered on Facebook and again we'll be in touch with Andy uh, to let him know where to send the whatever it takes and the page one notebook yeah thanks for everyone who entered the competition yeah it really... does mean a lot and it's really helpful for us at this point growing our audience yeah yeah so i appreciate that and uh, well done to the winners um as ever we would ask if you like the podcast if you can give us a rating and a review on apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate that it helps us climb the charts uh, even if you're not listening to an Apple podcast, I should say. Oh, that's a good point. You can, yeah. you can always leave a rating and a review. Uh, and also thanks to Simon Stokes for his audio assistance. Now, Simon, I don't know if you're aware, but he is... A, kind a, of a big deal. He is. He's, he's a music producer and a DJ. Uh, and uh, he's asked me also to mention the Subsign Academy of Electronic Music, where you can uh, sign up to get uh, taught how to make your own great music by Simon and uh, various other yeah. DJs. Yes, he's, he's a great guy, excellent teacher, and there's a, I know there's a number of folk who've gone through the class and they've absolutely loved it, so yeah. definitely check out if you're interested in that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, so the website for that, we'll put it in the um, podcast description, but it's subsignacademy.com. But as I say, it's in the podcast description. Um, but that's enough from us, and I think uh, we'll just leave you with a bit more about page one. And I hope that you'll tune in for the second part of our chat with Richard in a few days. See you then. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? 
And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one.